0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Business School. My name is Phineas Ellis. I am
1: the co-founder
0: of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company.
1: And I'm Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, which is a direct-to-consumer furniture brand.
0: This is a podcast where we talk about startup culture, its many facets, its many dramatic, evolving stories. And today we're going to have a conversation about a couple things, but the first is business models, the landscape of direct consumer, and how over the last several years we've used business models as a marketing tactic. Then we will also talk about a very specific business case where we, you know, Stephen and I have a few few questions about the business model, you might say. And we also talk about PR and we make a few predictions in this episode.
1: It's a, it's a good episode. We will occasionally do these without guests. And today is one of them. So it's a little bit more freeform.
0: We're going to dig into something that I think everybody is familiar with, but probably doesn't necessarily recognize that they are talking about when they're talking about startups, and that's business models. One of the biggest buzzwords in startup culture is direct consumer. Abbreviated to DTC, there is a plethora of buzzwords that surround this business model. That being said, there are also a lot of offshoots of this business model that we're going to touch on today as well. Can you direct consumerize everything? No, you should not. <laughs> yeah, and so so anyway, I wanted we wanted to kick it off, I'm going to lay the groundwork a little bit by saying Burrow is obviously, quote, direct to consumer brand. Can you talk about DTC and how it manifests in terms of Burrow, your company?
1: Yeah. uh, So direct to consumer means in its most simplest form, selling directly to a customer as opposed to selling to a retailer who is then going to sell to the customer. So if I sold my products to walmart and then walmart marked them up and sold them in their stores that would be not direct to consumer versus if i just sell directly to the customer that's direct to consumer there's been a lot of talk in the last several years about how all these direct-to-consumer brands who sold probably online started moving to retail stores because they wanted to go direct and there's been this discussion of like well People went online to not pay rent for their store and not cover like the cost of a build out and paying retail employees and so on and so forth. And so they just sold online directly to customers. But then the marketing acquisition cost that you have to spend on digital marketing to acquire customers online, that was basically replacing rent. I don't, to me, the two are the same. You have to spend money to either run a store or to market or both. I think it's fine. I think if you're just making your own products and selling them to consumers, that's that's what it is. And for for Burrow, staying on this topic of like overall what are good business models and what are not, I think you have to have for a direct to consumer brand to have a good business model, they have to be cutting out some cost in the process. Right? What are they doing differently? Like what is the value add? You're either you're either selling a better product With a better experience or at a lower price or some combination of of those things. And for us, by shipping furniture that comes in the mail via UPS Ground, we're creating a more convenient experience. It gets to the customer faster. And the cost of shipping actually goes down by a couple hundred dollars. So we can offer the same quality product that would typically cost $700 more. We can offer it for $700 less get it to the customer faster, more convenient experience. And then we just have smarter, more customer driven design into the products themselves. So that's where we're adding value. But a lot of people are just like, oh, I'll create a brand that sells online directly to the customer, but they're not really adding any value. They're not making making a better product. They're not making that much better of an experience. Like if you're buying, let's just say a toothbrush, for instance, I don't think it's that hard to go to CVS to buy a toothbrush. Ordering it online doesn't necessarily make it better.
0: doesn't necessarily make it worse either, right? I mean, you know, I think... No, it doesn't. It's just uh, you collect more of that margin. But I remember early on in my days at Warby Parker, when all of this stuff was happening, we, well, there was that we did a, the first Warby Parker commercial was all about business model. And I think the commercial actually did pretty well and was effective because at that time, that business model was thought to be very innovative and relatively revolutionary. And I think primarily because you could build an entire business just online and not just sell something on the internet, which was done long before that, but to build a whole brand experience and a whole new customer journey and a whole new, and represent that all online, That being said, we played heavily into cutting out the middleman. I mean, I think literally, I think there were scissors cutting out a paper worker in the ad. But who was that middleman? Well, for Warby, it was optical shops, it was opticians, it was the. So they're the
1: Walmart of. Yeah, exactly.
0: It was the brand markup of the large company that owned 80% of the eyeglass landscape. Lexotica owned Pearl Vision, Sunglass Hut, Lens Crafters, and those were all sub brands underneath Lexotica. And then there was also a large portion of the market that sold glasses, was independent optical shops that sold the brands. So there's just a whole group of people that were trying to make a dollar off of one pair of glasses. That being said, I remember when the direct consumer term and cutting out the middleman was sort of started to be made kind of like a a marketing technique, right? And that then birthed in a lot of ways, this explosion of companies that saw this not just as a way to start a business with low friction and collect more of your margin by selling direct online, Control your customer experience, all the benefits that we've talked about from this business model, but also the marketing opportunity around being direct to consumer. It also just has this feeling of like stick it to the man or woman, you know? And uh, I'm fascinated by that. So when you were coming out of business school, I would imagine that played a role when you were sort of thinking about what business to start. Was that part of your analysis when you were coming up with Burrow out of college?
1: Yeah, it was. It was a huge part of it. It was like, you just map out the existing industry and say where, which by the way, we looked at a lot of industries to see where there were opportunities. Furniture at the time was largely untouched. And I mean, frankly, Casper was the one that made us think of it. It was like, okay, mattresses, what else can you do this for? Just as if you were looking at eyeglasses, you might think like, oh, are there sunglasses you can do this for, right? And so we, we started with like the broader furniture space and it was like, okay, if you were to tackle furniture, so first off mapping out that, that process and it was like, okay, if you buy a sofa from Crate and Barrel, Crate and Barrel doesn't have their own factory, they're, they're just contracting it out with third party manufacturers. And you dig in even more and you find that like those manufacturers are the ones that are actually kind of driving the design process. And then Crate and Barrel comes and says, I want these styles and I want to adjust the size or whatever. And if they want a different style, they go to a different factory. They're kind of just shopping from what the different factories already make. And so then once that, product is made in that factory. It ships to Crate & Barrel's regional warehouse. That costs a couple hundred bucks to get it from either North Carolina or Vietnam or wherever they're making it to that regional warehouse. And then they have to ship it to the local retail store, which is another couple hundred bucks. And then you either pick it up from the store or you pay for last mile delivery as the customer. And so there's several hundred dollars in that process. And we were like, oh, if we could design a sofa and furniture in general that can be shipped in compact boxes that are within the UPS and FedEx dimensional weight guidelines. We could ship a sofa anywhere in the US on average for about a hundred bucks as opposed to 600 plus dollars and pass those savings on to consumers and also offer a better experience. And so that was like, know there's this idea in silicon valley of how do you create a business model that is 10x better than the previous model i think it's total bullshit like most companies are not creating a 10x better experience overall if they really were they would be zero to a billion in revenue like fairly quickly Uh, but it's but it's a really noble goal and i think if you can come somewhere in between you know one and 10x better you're you're doing pretty well and so that was our thought process like where are all the ways that we can add value And I think it's a similar experience that a lot of these other brands have done, which is an intense focus on the customer because the customer has all the answers, right? If you ask customers what they want and design the perfect experience for them with the best products for them, and you're focused on a specific customer set, um, that's the winning formula. And that's what Warby did. And that's where I think the brands that have done a really good job are the ones that focused on a customer and an industry, and said, how do we make the best version of this? And like, where are the opportunities in an indi- in a big industry? And then how do I solve or capture those opportunities by focusing on a very specific customer? And that means not copying someone else's business model. You can't just be the Warby Parker of X and expect it to work. Like the home try-on program for Warby worked for Warby, but like, doesn't mean you need a home try-on program for furniture
0: right and i think it's it's a great segue because what you describe is what you did with burrow basically right is taking some of the model that you saw with warby and casper and others right and applying it to a new industry and then eventually evolving your own spin on it and adding all of your own value propositions within that business model however there are so many examples of the warby parker of Or just simply saying, we are going to build a business around this going direct to consumer, essentially marketing concept. And we're going to build a full business around that. And theoretically, a brand around that, which brings us to a new company that we absolutely have to talk about and their business model. And again, I don't know them personally. I think you sent me the article. We read about it. We talked about it a little bit. company called Italic. And... I think it's interesting to talk about because it's a business model play, not just from an actual value perspective, but also from a marketing perspective, right? Their entire marketing, at least what they're presenting to the world, is about direct consumer supply chain value passed on to the customer to the point where there's actually moving graphics on their site which, you know, the the graphics of old, the original direct consumer graphics about value proposition for direct consumer were like, and a lot of the brands, probably Burrow included, added these to their site. I'm not sure if you guys did, but, you know, it was like traditional retailer and then direct consumer and then their markup. And it just showed like direct consumer was like, our cost of goods sold, and then shipping, right? And then it was like what you pay, and then for the traditional retailer, it was like all of these other additional costs, and the bars were like it was two bar graph basically. This is a souped up version of that where there's a whole line item. Let's
1: yeah, let's break down their what their business model is. They charge you a monthly or annual subscription, annual, right? It's like a hundred bucks, and that is what they claim is their only profit. otherwise, they take they use luxury bags as an example. If it costs $250 to manufacture a Prada bag, but it retails for five grand, I'm making this up. Italic will sell you that luxury bag uh, for $250. And so they will make zero profit off that. They'll make all their profit off, off the annual subscription. Do I have that right?
0: The quick description of their company is quality at cost Access to 800 plus quality goods from the same manufacturers as top brands with zero markups. So basically what they're saying is not only are we cutting out the middleman.
1: Middle person.
0: Middle person. We are going directly to the same factories as you get your Prada bag. And we're effectively going to give you the same product, but we're going to basically take it off the factory floor and ship it to you. And... We're not going to mark it up at all. We're just going to take a small monthly fee, membership fee, and that's going to be enough to run our company.
1: I have so many problems with this. Talk to me. Okay. First of all, let's just get the the most offensive one out of the way. Designers, whether you feel they are underpaid or overpaid, doesn't matter. They are artists in a sense. And so for somebody to just rip them off and charge less and make it at the same factory, is undercutting the people that spend the time and effort and have the creativity to create this product to begin with.
0: Steven, I love this take. That's such a great point that I actually wasn't even considering. Why do we spend so much money on a Prada bag? It's because you love the brand. You appreciate the designer, their creativity, the art behind it. And whether or not you agree with the price point is irrelevant. There is a market for it, and they've sustained for many generations at this point
1: yeah so so that's the the first one the second one is uh which you sort of just touched on people pay for brands because they want the brand if you want a prada bag you buy it because it says prada on it you're not trying to hide it there's the reason why brands have their logos on their products you don't buy a prada bag because it's the most durable leather yeah if, if i just want a decently durable bag of whatever brand like you can buy that stuff on amazon and I'll do it without paying a, a membership fee to buy it on and, and any site, right? Like I don't need to do that. So that's the second thing. The, the third thing is I just called total bullshit on the concept of like, oh, we're not marking it up at all. Of course you are. This is a, that's a total marketing play. They are marking it up because what is at cost? Does, and I know right now they're saying we're not spending on marketing. We're just going to live off of word of mouth and you know referrals and, and whatnot and press, but like, what is cost? Is it the cost that you pay the factory? Is it the cost to pay the factory and then ship it to the US to the 3PL? Is it cover the cost of the 3PL, the fulfillment? Does it cover the cost of shipping to the customer? And is that standardized? Because it's definitely not. If you're shipping to California or Florida, those are two very different costs. So, like, what are they covering? are they covering the cost of their team which means they actually are marking it up because by the way that's how you cover your overhead costs is to mark up products so I, that's my point is like i call bullshit on this on this simplification of like oh we're going to give it to you with no revenue and but back to point 2 actually on the brand point is i think you're either a consumer that appreciates quality and the brand and what that brand stands for and that's why you're shopping there or you're the cost conscious consumer And if I'm a cost conscious consumer, I'm not paying for an annual subscription. Like, I'm just not. Absolutely agree. I I also think it just feels like
0: misleading, regardless of what's actually happening at the company. It just feels misleading in that it assumes that the customer doesn't have a basic understanding of how businesses work. And it seems a little bit like it's preying on those people that don't or they assume don't like it kind of feels like a do you think I'm stupid marketing position yeah right because just saying quality goods from the same manufacturers as top brands with zero markups is not a business one plus one does not equal two in that scenario and it just it feels misleading and, and kind of icky I do think this is interesting from another perspective in that like we said before it is a full business model marketing play. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we've been marketing business models. Burrow's been doing it. Warby's been doing it. Casper's been
1: doing it. Everlane? Is this not the Everlane model? Radical transparency? I was just going to say. I mean, Everlane, for like put aside all their cultural problems right now that are happening or that are coming to light rather. They did this business model better. They just said, we're going to tell you what we market up by. It costs us twenty dollars to make this T-shirt. We're selling it to you for fifty, and that covers our costs and whatever. I still think you're right. You're being—they're being like italic is being condescending to their customers by saying like, "Oh, we'll give it to you at cost, like not no markup. Like, let the customer decide if they're willing to pay whatever price you want to charge for it. I mean, that's actually have an understanding of like how business models work. There's a difference between willingness to pay from the customer side and cost to make. And like the best businesses have figured out a way to create a situation whereby the customer's willingness to pay is substantially higher than the cost to actually make it. And by the way, in that transaction, both parties are happy.
0: Now, let me play devil's advocate for a second. I get it. I understand why they're doing this. It makes sense to me why. Here's the why. It's a shortcut. It is a way to promote something novel that is potentially misleading, but if you don't look too closely, sounds intriguing, sounds innovative. Flowery language, good PR. They probably hired a good PR firm. They're pumping it up. I think their article that I read that you sent me was in Fast Company. Not easy to get a good piece in Fast Company. They had a pretty decent article about them. I get it. However, what it also does, and I think Everlane is, we're going to do a full episode on Everlane in the future, but I think Everland's experiencing this a little bit in that when you commit to something like this, it does also box you in. So there are long-term implications. And we've talked about this on the show multiple times already. The decisions you make early on as a company matter long-term to your point. If you are inclusive and you hire a diverse team early on, it's not going to come back and bite you. If you commit to this business model as your pillar marketing strategy and as the full identity of the business, this is what they're going to have to live by forever And we, the consumer, only gets more wise to what they're actually doing the longer they're around. It'll be interesting to see, you know, I don't think I've ever had an example as acute as this uh, of saying, wow, I'm calling it now that there's going to be potential bumps in the road in the future based on how they're positioning themselves today.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's going to be one expose if they even make it this far. About what their actual costs are, and it's going to be like, oh, look at that—they actually do market up, yeah. and then that's going to blow them up. You're right; they they have to stick to this now. I'm I'm just dig- I'm digging around their website right now. They like compare their sheets to uh, to parachute.
0: Isn't that funny? Now that we're now we're comparing our sheet we're comparing our products to other direct to consumer brands. It's like me starting a marketplace website and saying our sofas are as good as Burrows. It, it's just it is interesting.
1: Which which people do? But,
0: which people do, which is great, but it's just it shows the maturity of the direct consumer landscape and how it is today. You know, Burrow is now in a position where it's being represented as kind of like an industry standard, which is sweet in a lot of ways. No, but this is great. they they're just not
1: even accurate.
0: Look, this kind of marketing can take you, it's like candy, right? If you need a little boost of energy, sugar high, give you a little energy but it wears off quickly. This also leads me to another question for you which is, you know, we talk about corporate responsibility in our first episode, but we talk about it from the perspective of diversity and representation. What's the what's the corporate responsibility of companies to represent good business practices?
1: I think it's just a necessity. Like I think certain types of customers want to know what they're paying for. And rightfully so, a lot of customers want to know like it's not just what am I paying for in the sense of like, how much are you marking it, marking it up? Because you don't have to tell people.
0: I guarantee you this company has significant top line right now.
1: Oh yeah, for sure.
0: Significant revenue, guarantee it.
1: Well, why do you say that?
0: Because they're brand new. They have a decent following online. They have high quality photography. They've clearly raised money and they've spent it.
1: If I could short a private company, I would short this one.
0: Anyway, look, we don't want to be haters on this show but I do like the idea that we'll comment on things in a candid way that we think need to be addressed and this is one of them. We'll follow along. We also openly invite the founders of the company to come on the show and talk about it and defend the model and, and have a candid conversation about it. I think that's important. We're always open to that. We actually love to do that. But yeah, I mean, I think there's just too many lessons that we've learned over the years from a lot of these companies and this just kind of seems like they took all of those things and put them into one marketing strategy and kind of built a company on it. Steven's deep in their website
1: right now. He's I am I'm hooked. I'm, I'm like they're they're comparing the pricing of their products to like other brands and the, they're misquoting the other brands, the, the price of it. It's also such like predatory against par- like why are you going to pick on parachute?
0: Here's another issue. Pop, the pop cultureization of startups, the regular consumer of these companies like Burrow and Parachute are a lot more sophisticated today than they were five years ago. So we're just more wise to things like this. And I just think your runway as a result is going to be a lot shorter before your chickens come home to roost. Whereas if this was five years ago, you could ride on that novelty of a business model and cutesy marketing and cutting out middlemen and all that for a lot longer. Today, that marketing's been—we've been hammered with that marketing for ten years. So I just think the consumers got a little bit is a little bit wiser to it and a little bit more cynical about the industry in general. And I think you've probably experienced this on how hard it is to acquire customers organically today. And you got to really be creative and innovative and you got to really be, have great customer service, have great product, deliver on all fronts, right? We've said this many times. This is an alchemy. The best brands out there are an alchemy of a bunch of different things. And the cutesy marketing tagline is a lot less valuable than it was. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the maturation of the customer that's been buying these products now for a long time this stuff isn't that novel. There's a level setting of this landscape happening and it's kind of what the whole show was built on. And the level setting is we're coming back down to earth a little bit and your product's got to be good. When somebody sends you an email, you got to respond. And all basic business principles that I think was the re- a big reason why startups, the direct consumer boom happened in the first place, but that ran amok quite a bit when we got a little drunk at the wheel and I think that is now level setting and this just seems poorly timed
1: yeah yeah it's almost like they you know it's great I I have this conversation all the time with a lot of friends it's like I love all these companies that are basically selling products for substantially less than they should cost and they're being subsidized by by venture capitalists like think of all those like meal pal companies where it was like you can eat at a different place in new york city for lunch for five bucks and meanwhile you can't actually go and find a meal for five bucks in new york city unless you're gonna eat dollar beans and like scooters electric scooters like those things are just burning money but you can use they're fun as hell to zip around the city and 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 they're cheap it's so cheap and it's like they're just being subsidized same with like Uber and Lyft for like for the most part, even still like it's subsidized by investors to provide this super undervalued product or service, and they that's how they get really big and it's great, but it doesn't mean it's a smart business model.
0: yeah, I think the through line here too is to sort of tie it together and put it in the context of business school. I'm realizing that like each one of our episodes we talk about kind of the need to look behind the curtain again. And the curtain, I think has gotten really, really thick in this landscape. But when you look behind it, ultimately, this is pretty simple. And it's about selling a product for more than you pay to make it and having a good experience for customers and building a good team with diverse voices. And for whatever reason, we've kind of forgotten the fact that these are businesses in a lot of of ways. Now, again, there's a lot of opportunistic businesses that have had success that are exceptions to that rule in, a lot, in some ways.
1: Yeah, I want to make one last point and then I want to talk about PR because you touched on that point before. I defend the premise of the idea of Italic in the sense that on a one-off basis, if you had the opportunity to actually buy a Prada bag from the factory for exactly the cost that Prada pays the factory for that bag, and it was an actual Prada bag, you'd be like, yeah, that's what I wanna do. I wanna pay exactly cost. But you want exactly cost for the actual Prada bag. You don't want actual cost for like their rough draft of it that has no logo and label on it, that's just the leather, like that's not cool. You want the packaging, you want the
0: in-store experience, you want the prestige of the logo, You want to be proud of the fact that you still have your bag you bought 15 years ago. You want to walk around with that pride. You want people to know that you spent five grand on a handbag because it's a symbol that you have the money to do so. There is so much wrapped up in brand. We should probably do an episode on brand in and of itself and stripping that away defeats the purpose.
1: Yes. Yes, it does. So I get the concept, but they just did it wrong. Anyways, so PR. Okay,
0: so since we started the show, people have been very flatteringly saying it reminds them of Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher on their Pivot podcast.
1: All 100 people that listen.
0: Exactly. And very humbled by that. So one of the things that Scott Galloway is famous for is predictions, winners and losers, right? And so I think it's cool that on this show, we are definitely making a prediction about Italic. I hope we weren't too harsh. Uh, I wanted to make another prediction that I actually have been talking about for several years at this point. And I'm shocked that the bubble hasn't burst yet. And that's PR. I have a lot of good friends in PR and they're very talented and really good at what they do. And if they weren't running PR companies, they'd be running different companies. So I want to caveat it with that if you guys are listening, but I think that PR as an apparatus is one of those areas in startups where you have to have it because there is value in getting press, obviously. But it's not necessarily challenging for these companies to get PR. It's difficult, it's a lot of legwork sending samples, all of those things. So it's, it's easier for companies to just hire a firm than it is to bring it in house. But as a result of that, these PR companies kind of have a little mini hold on this completely outdated model and wildly overpriced service so they can, they can get rates that are super high. I mean, it's very expensive to put a PR agency in New York on retainer if you're a company. You can speak firsthand to this. And it's very difficult to evaluate the actual value that they're bringing to your company. Other than just the occasional publication, right? And I think you can attest there are a lot of PR companies in the startup landscape that get twenty to twenty five thousand dollars a month in retainer fees and add next to no value, but it's difficult to fire them because you go, Well, I still need an article to come out every so often, there's still credibility in these publications and Inc. Magazine and Entrepreneur and Fast Company. And, you know, hopefully maybe you get a New York Times piece here or there. And so you still need it. And there's still some value left in those publications, but you got to vastly overpay for it. And I'm two points here. One, kind of frustrated I didn't start a PR agency five years ago. <laughs> and two, Dude, it comes out. shocked that it, the bubble hasn't burst.
1: And there is just massive fees to be collected in PR still. So I think the PR industry, like any industry, has good actors and bad actors. And so I think, number one, there's that point. And number two- They've also
0: been filling their bellies on venture capital for many years on overfunding of startups. That's another point I wanted to make. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's fair. I think there's, so there's good ones and bad ones, number one. And then number two, you have to pick the right one for you. And, you know, early on we actually, so the value of press, yes, I want to validate It's huge. When we were doing our pre-orders in 2016, we were doing like a little bit here and there. And then New York, the New York times did a big spread on, on us and New York times magazine. And we got $200,000 worth of pre-orders in like two weeks, which was insane for at the time. Like it, it works. Like you can actually translate it to real, like a, a real meaningful impact on, on sales. If you get the right publication for your audience and it matters and it's like a, you know, in an influential way, it drives it. We found that like a lot of business press doesn't help us, but if it's like design press or product press, that really moves the needle for us. When we first started, actually, we, we hired a PR agency. We hired Sunshine Sachs. They are one of the biggest PR agencies. We were tiny for them. And so of course, like they don't put their A team on us right? We get like their junior folks who just joined and like they were trying their best, but you know, we didn't get shit. You're right. What we were are you paying? Uh, I don't think I can legally say, <laughs> but it was, <laughs> it was, it was too high. 20, it wasn't 20K a month, okay. but it was north of 10. We'd have our weekly or monthly updates and it'd be like, oh yeah, we pitched these stories and it's, it's like, ah, oh, like. OK, but where are the stories? And the problem there is because they have not only not their A team representing us, but also they have limited interactions with all these reporters. And of course, they're going to save the, the media interactions with the reporters for their biggest clients, because that's that's who's paying them the most money. If you're negotiating for the cheapest rate because you're a small, scrappy startup, they're not incentivized to give you their best story. Right. When they have if if you're talking about them as like gatekeepers to all these media outlets, which media outlets will say, no, we do our own research, make up with our own stories, which some of them do, some of them don't. Whatever. It doesn't matter for all like the product roundups. They do not like that's like inbound pitching to them. Uh, And those, by the way, do drive a lot of revenue.
0: Yeah. And again, this this is no fault of the PR agencies, quite the contrary. This is because they are in many ways still the gatekeepers to these publications that actually in a lot of cases still do continue to add value to a company. They are able to charge high fees for their services and put their B team on it. And that is just kind of like an acknowledged arrangement that still exists even though probably both parties are like what is this is kind of wild what's really going on here
1: yeah but that's why you should work if you're a startup you should work with a smaller pr agency absolutely massive shout out to our pr agency now so we have an in-house head of communications who's amazing she's a badass yeah you know lt and she also does uh manages our relationship with diffusion which is our PR agency, they, if you want to talk about marketing the business model, their business model is uh, we agree to whatever these media outlets and types of stories are, like some are worth more to us than others. They have a point system. If they earn X number of points in a month, they get paid accordingly. And so if they produce a ton, they get paid a ton. If they produce nothing, they get paid nothing. I love that. And you know what that accountability translates to? We pay them quite a bit every month, but we get a lot out of it and we feel good for about it. Yeah. And like, that's a really, that's a great business model, but we're also a meaningful customer for them, right? We're a meaningful client. Um, so we are getting their A team, which is great. Um, and so I, I, I think it can work. And, and it like does. We can, yeah. we can actually track revenue to these like press articles. They are well worth the money, but you have to do it the right way.
0: You have to do it the right way. I, and my big thing when people ask me about PR is like, you got to be willing to hire and fire. It's like staffing your team. You got to be willing to fire your PR agency and you got to be willing to rehire the same agency and you got to be willing to rehire a different agency. And when we were at Jack, when I was at Jack Irwin, we hired, we worked with JBC, Jennifer Beck Communications, and they're good friends of mine and we hired them. We had to fire them of no fault of theirs, by the way, more fault of ours. And then we rehired them and they were great. Honestly, they were great both times and they're just savvy. They're just like a savvy team and they, and they work really hard. But when your company grows, your priorities change. This
1: stuff isn't personal. It's a transaction. And you got to give them direction if it changes. If you want a, a story about something, whatever it is for your brand, Tell them, challenge them, be like, I want you to aim for the fucking New York Times and get me in there about this story. Like figure out a way to make it happen. If you push hard enough, you'll get something close to it at some point.
0: The biggest, one of the biggest complaints PR agencies have with startups, and I'll speak on their behalf and maybe I'm wrong, is they don't give them direction. Like they just don't know how PR agencies should be seen as a tool. And you should be leveraging that tool for results. And the PR agency is not going to fire themselves if you don't know what you want, if you don't know where you're going, if you don't know what your what your position is, then you should not be paying your PR agency a retainer of any amount. That happened to us at Jacker or One. We didn't know what we wanted. And we had a PR agency and we were just funneling money out the door and we were having internal meetings trying to decide what the direction of the company was going to be at that time. And then you'd bring in two smart owners of a PR company that would come in and that we, when we had meetings, we'd have weekly meetings in person with both of the partners at the, at the firm and they'd be coming up with all of these ideas. And we just didn't know what, we didn't know where to direct them. And so that's, again, an interesting thing. We always circle back to this. which is like
1: accountability lands with the founders of these companies in so many cases as well. Yeah, a good founder needs to have that mindset in everything. Like it may be someone else's fault, but pretend it's your fault and figure out what that is. Or pretend that if it is the other person's fault, what could you do to have changed it? Even if they should have done a better job, what could you have done to ensure that, that they did a better job? And if there's anything you can do, then you should have fucking done it because it's your job ultimately to ensure the success of your business. And so, yeah, if your PR agency isn't doing enough for you, challenge them and also test and, and measure the impact. What we learned is that an in-depth business article about Burrow doesn't do shit for revenue or our brand it's interesting. And like my friends in finance are like, Oh, this was a really cool article, but they already know about us. And if you didn't know about us, I don't think that's making you want to buy our furniture. But if you read a product review or read about us in a design article or a product roundup or something like that, that's actually translates into the decision process that goes through your head when you're thinking about what to buy for furniture. So those work. So we stopped asking our PR agency to do so many business articles. Yeah. If we hadn't said that to them, they'd still be pitching those all the time, right? Like that's on us to tell them.
0: Okay, so my prediction is that these agencies pivot to a focus on content creation instead of PR. And they use their existing apparatus to assist in the creation of content. And, and they fail at it. No, no, come on. I, I, I my, <laughs> my, my prediction stops there. Uh, all right, man, I think that was a great episode. Class dismissed. Class dismissed. If you are wondering how you could support this show, the best thing you can do is subscribe. Wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified when we come out with a new episode.